Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Markus Wagner, who is Professor of Quantitative Party and Election Research at the University of Vienna. Our conversation will focus on his 2014 article, Less Authoritarians and Policy Representation in Western Europe, Electoral Choice Across Ideological Dimensions. The article is co-authored with Zolev Kofridi and Johanna Willmann. In the article, the authors investigate the electoral preferences of left authoritarian voters in Western Europe. Left authoritarian voters are those that hold left-wing economic preferences and favor, for example, higher levels of redistribution, but combine these preferences with more authoritarian positions on cultural issues. Because there are only very few parties that combine left-wing economic with more authoritarian positions, these voters often do not find direct representation in the party system. So they have to decide if they rather vote with their economic or cultural preferences. In their analysis, the authors find that issue salience plays a key role in determining which parties left authoritarian voters prefer in the end. Later in the podcast, we talk about the role that left authoritarian voters play for the transformation of European politics more generally. Can their changing electoral preferences explain why mainstream party support has declined and other parties such as the radical right have increased their support? What are other important groups in the electorate that make us understand these changes? Marcus and I will talk about these and other questions in the next 45 minutes. For more information about Marcus and his research, you can follow him on Twitter under MarcusWagnerAT or visit his website, MarcusWagner.net. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Marcus. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. So today we're going to talk about an article of yours that's co-authored with Johanna Wilmann and Zoe Lefkofridi. And in the article, you investigate the electoral preferences of left authoritarian voters. And my first question for you is really, what was the motivation behind the article? Why did you start working on it? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you know how co-authored work uh, comes together. It's often sort of people's different interests and sort of um, you're discussing things uh, over lunch or at a conference and you sort of get, get, get an idea of what you could look at. And in this case, the, the three of us all had sort of different interests that kind of merged um, to form the sort of the backbone of this article. So what this article looks at is that left authoritarian voters, so people who are left-wing economically and, and right-wing on cultural issues, um, and Johanna Willmann, who um, went on to do a PhD at um, SUNY Stony Brook, she was really interested in, in cross-pressured voters, so in voters who sort of are torn between, um, sort of torn in two directions by their identities or by their preference, preferences. And, and Zoe Lefkofridi, um, who's a professor in, in Salzburg now, she was, she was really interested in representation, so how, how voters find parties that fit their views or whether they have parties that fit their views. And I was really interested in, in dimensionality and, and, sort of, and sort of ideology as in two-dimensional spaces and where people are located. And we were all working in Vienna at the same time. And, and we sort of realized at one point that there's this sort of group of people that um, are, are really 
not really discussed very much in the literature, but are still very important empirically. And that's these, these left authoritarian voters. So that these, um, these people who are left wing uh, on economics and right wing culturally, that they don't really have a party that fits fits their stances. And so we thought, okay, we want to look at we want to look at these voters a bit more closely. So these left authoritarian voters are clearly at the at the center of the paper. So tell me a little more about them. Who are they? What makes a left authoritarian voter? Yeah, so we're taking a really purely um, ideological um, approach to this in the paper. So we don't look at like the soci sociological background or what kind of people these are, whether it's more men or women or more working class or more middle class. We just look at the um, attitudes people have, the policy attitudes. And with these are people, so we, we sort of say, following a lot of other literature, that there's sort of two dimensions that really divide um, politics. One is sort of economic dimension, um, sort of traditional left-right dimension, and one is this culture dimension, which is immigration, law and order, um, social liberties, such as uh, gay rights and abortion, all these sort of non-economic issues. They are sort of summarized in this authoritarian, libertarian dimension, new politics, there's lots of different words for it. Um, and so, and, and there's a lot of reason to think that politics can be divided essentially in, in these two dimensions. Um, and, and then the left authoritarians are those who are left wing on the economic issues. So sort of pro redistribution, um, um, sort of pro uh, support for, for poor people, uh, pro maybe uh, stronger state involvement in the economy. Uh, but who also are more authoritarian, so maybe not so open to for immigration, more traditional social views, um, not so socially liberal, um, and, and that's the combination that that makes up the left authoritarians. And so, why particularly this group? So, why is it so interesting to study them in contrast to to other groups, maybe? Well, if you look at in Western Europe, the party system basically, since in the last 30, 40 years, opposes left liberal parties and right authoritarian parties as the main groups. Left liberal parties are social democrats and especially green parties and right authoritarian are more the Christian democrats, conservatives and the radical right, which also used to have sort of pretty um, right wing economic views. So those are the two main parties that exist. And then you have some right-wing parties that are liberal socially, like um, traditional liberal parties in Scandinavia or the FDP in Germany. And that, so those parties also exist, but there's no real prototype in Western Europe of a, like a left, Europe, a left authoritarian party. And so these voters, they don't really have a party. And that's why it's interesting. It's like a quadrant. If you want to think of it as a, as a, as a quad, two sort of four quadrants, or it's one type of, of um, combination of the two dimensions that isn't really doesn't really have an expression in terms of parties in Europe, in Western Europe, I should say. So why do you think that is? Why do we lack a party in, these, in this one quadrant? So, I mean, one thing is to say, it's, it's, you know, it's, that's not, it's not a universal phenomenon that there's no left authoritarian parties. I think in, in many countries there would be left authoritarian um, parties. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a, a combination of views that it's sort of illogical or, or doesn't make sense. And so very many traditional populist parties you could possibly describe as left authoritarian, sort of Peronism, uh, um, or even sort of, um, sort of Fidesz in, in Hungary have some left authoritarian aspects to them, um, or AKP in, 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 um, in Turkey. But um, in Western Europe, they, these, these parties didn't um, develop, right? Basically because um, 
the parties that were on the left economically, social democrats, um, they moved towards a more socially liberal. At least they, they didn't move in towards an authoritarian direction. They, they took, tended to take relatively liberal stances on these cultural issues. Also because social democracy was always founded on, on an ideology of internationalism, sort of social progress, um, support for minority groups. And so it was natural that they would move towards a more socially liberal stance in the 70s, 80s, especially when you know, green parties um, and new radical left parties came up as competitors. There was an impetus for them to move um, in that direction. And so the parties that were on the left economically in, in Europe, in Western Europe, didn't move to an authoritarian direction. And that's why basically that quadrant then remained empty once the cultural dimension became really important. So you would then basically say that it, this is something that's historically coincidental or even strategic, and then there's nothing about these two dimensions that fit together in a particular way particularly well. So that's something that, that there's something about left ideology that fits better with more a progressive liberal position on the cultural dimension. Yeah, well, I think the way these two dimensions are combined is always historically contingent. Um, so there's a lot of path dependency in how new issues, um, new challenges, dimensions are incorporated into party systems. This is something that, that um, Gary Marx and Lisbeth Holger have shown really nicely in, in their work as well. That's sort of this, this path dependency in, in party system change. Um, I do probably think that left-wing economic ideology does fit slightly better with, with liberal um, social views. I mean, maybe there's some kind of personal bias there as well, uh, since, since I, 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 would, I wouldn't describe my own views as particularly authoritarian. But, um, but, but I think there's there, the concern for poor people, for, for um, economically disadvantaged people kind of there's a, there is some kind of logical connection to people who are also disadvantaged just because of their um, gender or, or skin color. So I think this concern for minorities is something that's overarching. And so that maybe also explains why left-wing views tend to um, quite often go along with more socially liberal views. But it doesn't mean that the other combination doesn't make sense, but it might explain why it's slightly less frequent. Yeah, I think there's also Bob Yule's conception, right, who's, who says that left-wing is basically not necessarily accepting inequalities as something given by nature, why, why right-wing positions are much more willing to accept these inequalities as given. And I think that then you can basically find in both dimensions as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we've established now that left authoritarian voters lack this direct representation in the party system in Western Europe, at least at this point in time. Yeah. Why does it matter? Well, I mean, it matters normatively because, I mean, um, you have this group of, of voters that, hasn't, that, that has a particularly hard time in trying to find a party that represents them well. So if, in, in a way, in Western Europe, if you're a left, left liberal, you're, you, have a, you have an advantage over a left authoritarian voter because you have a, you have a party that actually fits. You have you have a, you can select usually among various parties that more or less have your views. Whereas if you're a left authoritarian, you're actually pretty badly represented, and you have to choose between a party that is closer to you economically or a party that's closer to you um, culturally or on this authoritarian dimension. So actually, these these are sort of a group that in a way is 
structurally or structurally faces a, a much more difficult choice than than other voters in Europe, and that's that's normatively pretty important. Um, yeah. And then strategically, I guess this is what you investigated in the, in, in the paper. Well, strategically, it's interesting because these are these are um, voters that are sort of more up for grabs, right? So they're they're, they're voters that could go, that could either go to to the left camp, the traditional left wing camp, which is sort of made up of Greens, radical left, social democrats, or they could go to a different camp, maybe the traditional right, mainstream right, or even the new radical right. And so they're much more because they're in this position of not having one party that represents them so well. They're much more. That's it. There's, they're they're much more um, at, sort of at play, right? There's 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 a lot more that part, parties can try have much more of an incentive to try and grab these voters than perhaps the voters who are anyway in their in their corner. Mm -hmm. And then, what do you find empirically? Is there other patterns how these uh, voters behave? So, I mean, first of all, what we find empirically is that there are lots of voters in this who, who are left authoritarian. So, we first of all just look descriptively whether whether there's lots, you know, looking using the European um, election study. We 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 we, and we we use various attitudes in that in that survey from 2009, so 10 years ago already, uh, and uh, we find that there are there are lots of voters there. And then what we look at is how they choose between the left-wing and left-wing economic parties and the right authoritarian parties. And what we show is that it's really um, a matter of salience. So uh, voters sort of do float somewhat freely between these two between these two choices that they can take, but if they see Economic issues is more important. They vote more for along their based on their economic ideology, and if they think cultural issues, particularly immigration, is more important, then they vote more based on their cultural congruence. And so that so that really that can has a, quite a big effect on which party they which which group of parties they they tend towards. So before going into more detail about the findings, maybe you can tell us a word or two very simple ways, what you did empirically exactly in the article. So we, we took the information on, on voters and parties from two sources, right? So we took the European election study to measure where voters are, are located on these two dimensions. And then we also took the Chapel Hill expert survey, which measures where parties are located to, to put parties in those two dimensions as well. Um, and so that, that gave us a basically data set where we have where voters are and where parties are, and the distance of voters to those parties on these two dimensions. Um, and that was sort of the basic, the basic input to, to have to merge these two data sets to see, um, to compare voter locations to party locations. And then to measure the, the, the sort of salience of, of, um, of the two dimensions, we, we use um, questions asking, voters which what topics they're most concerned about which topics are most important to them okay and then you find that those who think that economic issues are more salient um, vote with their economic preference and that those who find that cultural issues are more salient vote more with their cultural authoritarian preferences exactly i mean this is sort of a really uh, in a way it's quite a standard setup for 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 spatial voting i mean this is sort of a um, to, sort of theoretical approach to understanding this that's really 
based uh, in, in a long line of special special uh, understanding of, of voting behavior, which hadn't really been applied to the sort of particular question of how left authoritarians um, decide. And so for the specific pattern, um, how stable do you think this pattern is? Or is it context dependent? So for both elements, right, the positional voting and the, the saliency interaction. So what do you mean by, by context dependent exactly? So would you expect to find the same pattern, let's say now, 10 years, 10 years later, or do you think that other factors, context factors, um, like the state of the economy, the number of immigrants, all of these factors would really affect uh, these patterns of voting? Yeah, so I mean, we only look at one point in time, which is this 2009 survey. So um, what we then model is sort of between different citizens at that, that one point in time, how do their concerns differ? But of course, you could track this over time as well. And you could see that maybe, for example, after the, the, the um, refugee crisis, the so-called refugee crisis, that then overall the salience of the culture dimension really increases in the party system. Also, all other parties are talking about it more. So it's not just voters see it as more important, but also campaigns center more around that topic. Parties talk a lot more about that topic. The media is very focused on it. And so those sort of context factors of so the general um, setting in which political competition takes place can also have an impact. And that's something that we don't really look at in this article, but I, ex I expect that that will also shape how voters decide, even if they sort of, even if it's not sort of reflected that much in sort of the individual concerns, that kind of shapes the way people perceive parties. And can parties affect it themselves? What do you think? How much yeah. can party have an effect on this? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the parties can affect it themselves. I think actually salience is probably one thing they can affect a bit more easily than, than positioning, right? So that's why I think it's always really important to look at salience in terms of uh, uh, voting decisions and, and not just positions because parties' positions tend to be relatively fixed. It's really hard to change a reputation or your brand. And even if you change it, people might not believe you. You know, you can, like, it's really hard for a party to, to shift its position on a topic. Like, they often need to change a leader to do that and so on. So your positions um, are pretty sticky. But the salience, um, if you can manage to recenter the political debate around topics that are more advantageous to you, that kind of thing can be pretty easy. So um, I, I always think, like, salience is one lever that, that parties have that is probably a bit easier to use than, than positional change. Um, that's very interesting. And I think um, it's also important for the normative argument you're trying to make, because you argue very much from a perspective of representation, right? So voters have certain preferences and they're either represented or not. But if you think that these preferences are not necessarily fixed by the product of context conditions of what parties do, then a normative argument looks very different. And I usually try to say that for immigration, for example, people were holding these values for a long time, but what changed is that they linked these values to political decisions. And because of this, it is not just a pure um, matter of representation. And this also makes me look at the normative question a bit differently. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, like, so in this paper, we pretty much assume that people's preferences are fixed. We don't, we don't, we take a, it's a very sim simple um, approach in a way that we basically say that these people are left authoritarians and those are those, pref those are their preferences at this time. And that's kind of who they are. But of course, we know that parties can really shape 
um, preferences as well. And that's something that we, we don't um, we don't really consider in this paper because you can't do everything in one paper. But uh, parties can have, have a lot of power also in affecting how people think about their own positions and the issues, how they link different issues um, together, um, uh, what kind of concerns are are um, at the forefront. So even something of immigration, whether it, you, whether it's seen as a security concern, as an economic concern, as a cultural concern, that's something that parties can really can really shift, and that has immediate effects on, on also people's preferences concerning immigration as well. So. Um, I think that's a complexity that we don't really consider in this paper, but I think is important for how we understand party competition. So with these findings and uh, that conceptual work, where would you say lies the contribution of the paper to the political science debate? So, I mean, the first contribution, I think, is just to, to um, point out the fact that sometimes you have sets sets of voters that are just really badly represented by by um Party systems, right? And so, so even with you, you, the spatial model, the traditional spatial model doesn't really consider this that much. That the sort of differences in, in, if you look at one group of citizens, some people, some people are well represented uh, and have easy choices, and some people have faced really difficult choices and um, have a much harder time choosing between political parties. So I think sort of focusing on on these um, voters with with difficult decisions to make is one is one. Contribution and, and the other contribution I think is that we really highlight how salience, how the the priority of issues can be one underlying cause of um, party system change, because as certain issues become more important, then these groups that are available that are sort of basically hesitate between two parties, how they can really shift from one set of parties to another quite quickly, just if the salience of the of certain topics changes, and that kind of that kind of larger point of ex explaining sort of the transformations in party systems um, th through this group, I think, is a contribution. And if you could now continue to work on the questions raised in the paper, and if you could build on the paper, or if other people want to do it, and maybe listeners want to do it, what would you say were good avenues for further building on this paper? Well, I mean, so um, one thing I think is, is interesting, which we didn't, as I said, we didn't really consider is sort of the sociological background of these voters and i think that's something that's been a lot just discussed a lot in in the media and in popular work but also academically sort of who are these left authoritarian voters and some people call them like left behind voters or the losers of globalization uh, and they are often equated with these left authoritarians i don't think that it's as easy as that like there's a lot more um heterogeneity among among sort of losers of globalization but um be interesting to know like what kinds of voters are these left left authoritarian voters and the second question i would have is like how is is what i what we i say we have looked at is like how 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 fixed are they how are they are these left authoritarians always left authoritarians or do they shift in and out of this this segment um over time is are these are these views maybe more flexible um than i thought But then, like a third, a third thing is that actually, like, uh, luckily, which is always really nice to see, some people have have have, have worked on this topic um, um, since since our paper came out. So, I mean, there's a really great paper by Lean Renvald and Daniel Ush, which looks at which looks at these the social groups and where they where they are located in these two dimensional um, 
systems and, and which parties they choose. And then also there's, there's a, a really uh, great recent paper by, by um, Neil Steiner and, and Sven Hillen in the European Journal of Political Research, which looks at, which looks at whether these left authoritarians are less likely to participate and less um, satisfied with democracy. So they um, they sort of did the follow-up work, which, which uh, Zoe and Johanna and I sort of uh, failed to do or, or, or um, never, never, never completed, which was just to sort of ask, like, say, okay, so how do these unrepresented voters relate to democracy? Are they unhappy with um, democratic processes? Are they less likely to vote? And, and they actually have show, show really nice evidence using the European Social Survey that they, they left authoritarians are actually less likely to participate less satisfied, less trusting in politics. And, and what's really nice is that they show that when a, a party emerges that, that, that captures their views or that represents them, then actually that um, um, changes, right? So they look at Finland and the emergence of the True Finns party, and they show that once the True Finns emerged, actually um, that had positive consequences for, the, for, for, for these voters, for this group of voters, in terms of their, their sort of support for democracy. And then you would argue that this is normatively desirable. So if you have these parties, if you have a radical right party that comes up and represents these these voters, this is something that's good for democracy. Um, so yeah, this is this is always a, a, a difficult issue issue to discuss. I think I don't think it's a good thing for democracy if there's a big section of voters that is not represented. So these are people who have legitimate views. And I don't, I don't see why a, a right authoritarian party should be more legitimate than a left authoritarian party. So I think, basically, basically, I think it, it is a good thing if these, if if the views that people have find expression in party systems. Of course, always within the confines of of supporting democracy in general, right? So I think, I think in general, everybody, sh every every uh, sort of logical collection, connection of, of, of views, um, it's legitimate for that to have a, a party that represents it. So the problem, of course, is that, that you, you, you don't want parties that um, uh, undermine democracy. So the, the, the challenge with, with radical right parties, of course, is that while they represent views, they also shape views. They, they, um, they, they, um, They, they take the, the views that people have and, 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 and solidify them, perhaps even make them more extreme, and sometimes they push people into an anti-democratic direction. And so that's where you have to be a bit, that's where you have to be a bit sort of normatively careful, like not all representation of views is equal, I would say. Um, so in the podcast, what we always try to do is then also uh, try to link the academic work to more the broader developments in European politics. That is, for example, the decline in mainstream party support and increase in support for new challenger parties um, and many other issues. And so my question would always be, how would you say, do your findings, does your work on left authoritarian voters link to these developments? So I think one interesting thing is that it kind of explains the shift of the radical right towards more left-wing economic positions. So um, I, I don't I don't presume that that radical right parties were aware of the academic discourse around left authoritarians, but I think they 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 you know they read opinion polls as well. They have a, maybe they they just know what what people's views are. That maybe that's more sort of more inductive. But 
Um, what you have seen is that radical right parties have become less libertarian, sort of less pro-business and more sort of pro-welfare state, especially pro-natives um, having access to, to the, the, the welfare state. And that is really sort of a traditional left authoritarian um, type of view. So this welfare chauvinism, which academics have recently focused on, is, is for, for me is quite strongly linked to this left authoritarianism. And you can see how that um, move by the radical right makes strategic sense as well, because there's, they, they've, they've realized that there's a big group of voters that they can appeal to, that, that who, who can be their voter base um, ideologically. Um, and and, and for, for, for the radical right, it makes um, a lot of sense to, to carry out this shift. Uh, and that's also, I think, one transformation in European politics that we've seen is how the radical right has become perhaps slightly more distinctive from the mainstream right um, in terms of its economic profile as well. So there's this idea of the proletarization of the radical right. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's, again, putting a sociological spin on this on our ideological story, right? So, so we've always, we, we, in our paper, we kind of resisted the sociological aspects of it. But I think thinking of it in terms of like a, a welfare chauvinism, about um, a welfare state support be, be having a much stronger role in the radical right, uh, platform. Um, I think that's a really important change in, in, in what the radical right has been doing in the last 10 years. Um, yeah, and I mean, and, and in general, it's, it's these left authoritarians, they've really become a focus of, of political and, and journalistic debate. And I think that's something that, that we sort of unwittingly foreshadowed with this paper. So in 2014, no one was really discussing left authoritarians, but then with, with Brexit and Trump and the rise of the AfD, um, suddenly these left authoritarians became like a real focus of of what of where people saw Western European democracies as going wrong, right, for better or for worse. Although these arguments are very often based on specifically that sociological link that you're deliberately not trying to make, right? So there is this idea of the left behinds, the anywheres, those people were many of these commentators would argue these are exactly the people that left-wing parties should care about and have lost them to the radical right now because left parties are not authoritarian enough on the second dimension. What's your position on that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, so the, the, the somewhere versus anywhere uh, distinction and so on. I mean, I think this, this has really been something that's been, that is, is not as new as people think it is. So, um, Seymour Martin Lipset in the, I think it was in the 50s, already came up with this idea of working class authoritarianism. So the, the fact that people who are working class often uh, then held quite authoritarian um, views. So there was always this puzzle about why people who are sociologically um, traditional supporters of left-wing parties, why they don't vote for left-wing parties. Why, basically trying to explain, so why don't 100% of working-class people vote for social democrats? What's, what's, what's going on here that, that there's these people who, even though they have a party that basically supports their social group, comes from their social group, um, uh, don't, they, don't, uh, you know, they don't support that party. Um, and and working-class authoritarianism was always a way of trying to understand this... this um, decision not to vote for the, the economically closest party or the party that, that's, that represents you economically. Um, so I don't think it's, it's sort of a new debate. And then, so I think there's, there was always a section 
of the population that was resistant to social democratic discourse. So I don't, I don't necessarily see it as a, as a startling development. And then I think it's sort of the, so, so the, the, the evidence for me shows that it, the, these aren't really voters who moved directly from social democrats to the radical right, but there was, there's a, long, there's a longer term perspective that one has to take. You know, moving via non-participation, mainstream right parties. It's actually quite a complex story that I don't think you can simplify that easily. Mm -hmm. And Lipset, of course, already argues that uh, these left authoritarian, or what he calls working class authoritarian voters, do not support um, social democratic parties, but rather support communist parties who he sees as more um, authoritarian on exactly this the second dimension. So the a question would be, how much have these left authoritarian voters ever been part of the core social democratic constituency? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's, there's, there was always a section of um, the left-wing vote, which is also basically authoritarian, and and um, and they were, it was always probably more challenging for social democratic parties to attract those voters. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned the, the changing context conditions, right? So we've seen those at least two big crises in uh, in Western Europe in the 2000s, 2010s, the economic and financial crisis, the um, so-called refugee crisis. How do you think they have affected the dynamics of left authoritarian voters within party competition? So, I mean, the the what's, I guess, surprising is that the economic crisis didn't lead to a strengthening of left-wing economic parties, right? What, I mean, what, what you would expect based on our paper would be that in an economic crisis situation, people would really care only about economics, and so sort of left-wing economic parties should really benefit from that. So that's not really what, what, we, what we saw. Even before the, even before the um, refugee crisis, you saw that radical right parties were doing pretty well um, out of the situation. And there's something about um, the anti-elite um, anti-elitism of that period, which I think is sort of not captured in our, in our framework. Um, then the refugee crisis fits much more neatly with our framework, whereas where, where um, you see the cultural cultural topics became much more important, and that really fits with our idea that people then these left authoritarians then choose the party that is closest to them on the on the cultural dimension. Um, so, I, so I think that the, the two crises fit uh, fit our, our framework in, in different ways, actually. So you've already mentioned yourself that there is a strong focus in public debates, but now also academic debates on exactly this part of the electorate. Why them? Are there no other groups that are similarly interesting um, from a public or an academic perspective? So, I mean, the, the other group that would be interesting um, from from that perspective is this is this like right liberal groups right who um, are the mirror image of the left authoritarians um, who have they have right wing economic views but are socially liberal um, and the reason I think people aren't so interested in those voters um, is on the one hand that there that there are parties that represent them so there's always these there's always been these liberal parties. Um, uh, and these are often very old parties in, in many in many party systems that, that that represent these voters. Also, there's not that many voters who are right liberal, so they um, there's there's just a smaller proportion. Um, and and 
you know, if you want to be a bit, bit cynical, you know, it's that the right liberal voters tend to be sort of wealthy middle class and, and, and maybe the journalistic attention is is more, more captured by the sort of the romanticism of the of the lost working class or something like that. So I mean maybe it's something to do with that as well. Uh, and I think also, but like my final point would be like, like maybe they're just um electorally less, re less relevant because they tend to privilege their economic congruence quite automatically over their cultural congruence. So they, there's always a right there's always right wing economic parties. And right liberals, they they maybe they just choose, and this is just a hypothesis, maybe they just choose their right wing economic party no matter what, right? And 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 maybe that they're sort of um more liberal social views are, are, are less privileged. So that, I think that's a hypothesis which would be needed to, need to be tested, but that maybe they're just less actually available than the left authoritarians. Mm. But shouldn't that group be interesting if we try to understand the decline of the mainstream right, especially because we know that the mainstream right has in many countries strongly shifted toward the radical right in terms of their um, cultural policy positions, so right, especially on immigration. So this more liberal, business-minded, educated group of voters, do you think there's a point when they might turn their back on the mainstream right then because they have become alienated in terms of the cultural positions? Well, first of all, I don't think that the mainstream right has shifted so much in the direction of authoritarianism as perhaps um, might what people might think. I mean, if you think back to the 80s and 90s, I mean, it's not like Thatcher was like a, a, liberal, a liberal person. You know, she was pretty law and order. Um, same thing with, with Helmut Kohl, um, definitely a conservative social figure, right? So I think this sort of, this this idea that the mainstream right used to be this um, much, so much more centrist is a bit over overdone. But I do think that that, that you might see the, sh the shift of right liberals towards more liberal Towards privileging, privileging their liberal um, preferences over time. I think that's something. So, I mean, I, I live in Austria, and in Austria, there's been an emergence of quite a strong, stable liberal party just in the last 10 years. Austria historically never really had strong liberal parties. And you see that this is a group of voters that really think that their liberalism, their social liberalism, is more important to them than their economic liberalism. And they, they, they do want a party that is kind of free market, but not too much. But mainly they want a party that is also, that has socially liberal stances. Uh, and, and they're actually, you know, they, they don't really see the mainstream right as their, as their natural ally. There's, a big, there's quite a big gap between that party and the, and the, and the old mainstream right party, the, the People's Party. And, and I think that kind of dynamic you might, you might see play out um, more often, where there's actually a... A divide even on the right between the more liberal and the more more or more centrist, less liberal factions. Okay, Marcus, we're coming to an end of this episode already. Uh, before uh, we we're actually done with the episode, I have one question. As we know, we are recording this in a time of uh, Corona mandated isolation, so I'm always asking my guests for two recommendations on something to read, one piece by an academic and one non-academic piece that the guests recommend to the listeners. So what would your recommendations be? So um, my academic rec uh, recommendation would be to um, look at recent um, papers by a, a Danish, Danish researcher called uh, Metz Tau, um, who's been working on sort of group-based appeals. So the extent to which parties really target social groups in their rhetoric. 
um, and it sort of looked at um, party manifestos over the last 50, 60 years and looked at to the extent to which parties talk about workers or pensioners or families and, and really tried to look at what electoral consequences those group-based appeals have had. And he's sort of really been using that, um, those sort of, that American-inspired um, literature about sort of groups, groups, and groups, groups in politics to understand how um, parties focus not on like issues, which is the very traditional European approach, but actually talk about groups and appeal to groups, very much related to sort of James Tilley and Jeff Evans' uh, work on on um, on how voting happens. So I think that that I would I would recommend recommend that. Um, so he has a paper in Political Studies from 2019, how political parties use group-based appeals. Um, and then on the non-academic side, I think it always um, makes sense to turn to fiction to understand how societies change and how people's um, uh, views of society um, are affected by sort of larger societal, technological, economic changes. And, and one sort of set of books that really looks at that nicely is Elena Ferrante's four books, the Neapolitan books, the Neapolitan novels, which look at um, basically how, how working class neighborhood, a really working class neighborhood in Naples has changed since the 60s and 70s and sort of how sort of the fates of two, um, two women in those, those societies, uh, that society um, sort of ex exemplifies sort of class distinctions, um, so social change in Italy, um, over the last um, last few decades, and how that, that can sort of really give you quite a good insight into into um, the sort of more real stories behind a more dry academic analysis. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Marcus. Really, thanks for the conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it.